Well, hi, everybody. I'm Phil Town. I'm Danielle Town. And we're here to talk about Rule 1 Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger style investing. Mindfulness in investing. Yeah, and getting really focused and getting committed and whether you should and whether it's right for you and what are your options and how are things going to turn out if you choose those different paths for building your pile of money and going down your life toward financial independence, if yeah. that's interesting. Clearly, you're starting out because you invest on your own with the idea that everyone should invest on their own. And that's obviously what you've written books about and talk about and care about. However, there are other options. I mean, obviously, people can invest in mutual funds or in indexes, or they can give their money to a separate fund manager. And people do that because they don't have time and they don't have the inclination to invest on their own. Right, right. T- totally true. And so could we talk a little bit about those options and, you know, what? if they're a good idea, bad idea, or neutral? Sure. I think we should dive into that. So the basic way that the world is set up today for you to invest is that you invest through your business in what's typically called a 401k plan, where your company allows you to put money aside pre-tax before they tax it and they sometimes match that and that's a way that some people are are accumulating some retirement money Um, others are using IRAs independent retirement accounts uh, where you put again pre-tax money or Roth IRAs where you put money you've already paid taxes on and it accumulates without taxes Um, so there's all these kind of different choices that you can use for a retirement account type investing where you are accumulating money for your retirement and most of the businesses most of these accounts are set up to invest in a very narrow range of things typically mutual funds and sometimes um, mutual funds and indexes and a money market account so it allows you basically to be in the market or get out of the market and go to cash okay so what is a mutual fund okay so mutual funds are a real kind of specific kind of pool of capital that are made up of a lot of different kinds of investors. And the whole purpose of a mutual fund is to invest in things like uh, stocks, um, money market instruments, things like that. And these are operated by money managers. And what they try to do is produce an income for the fund investors. And it's basically structured to, you know, each mutual fund has had a different kind of purpose. you got broad market mutual funds that are basically trying to keep up with the market. We sometimes laugh about them and call them shadow indexes. that They really don't do anything that they're getting paid for. Um, other mutual funds try to actually beat the market. And it turns out over the long period of time that very, very few of them actually do. Which Sorry, gave what rise. makes them different from for a head, from a hedge fund, for example? Oh, mutual funds are real structured in terms of how they can manage the money. Uh, whereas a hedge fund is completely unstructured in how it can manage the money. What's an example of how they might be structured? Um, mutual funds can have to invest in a minimum of, let's say, 20 stocks uh, in the vast majority of their portfolio. Um, they can't short stocks. They can't do options. They're just long only. They um, all are. Um, almost all. Well, there are specific ones that you can get into that are that give them a broader latitude, but the vast majority of money invested in mutual funds is invested in long-only mutual funds. They're and that means buying stocks on the bet that they will go up. Right. Correct. Exactly. Not that they will go down, which is shorting them. And by the way, you want to hear some market jargon? Is Long means you bought something, and short means you sold it. Oh, of course. There you go. Yeah. I'm long. <laughs> I bought it. I own the stock, and I'm short. I sold it. 
So, you know, for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. So, um, mutual funds give small investors an opportunity to participate in a professionally managed uh, a fund. And that's kind of the advantage. So you can basically turn your money over to somebody and at least you can hope that they'll beat the market. And I think that's an important point that mutual funds can take small investors. They can they can take money from people who are not accredited investors. Right. And an accredited investor it can uh, I'm sorry, hedge funds can only take accredited investors. Yeah, good point. Like um, the um for somebody to put money in my hedge fund, they have to have 2 million dollars net worth after their house, not including their house. So yeah, they they've really drawn a box around um around mutual fund investors and just said, look, we're going to allow you to invest with real, with professional management, um, but we're going to really put restrictions on what this professional management can do with your money. It's $1 million without your house. You think it would be, but those are, they actually changed the rules a little bit now. No, it's $1 million <laughs> without your house. And an accredited investor is For an accredited million. investor. Yes. But a qualified investor is what we have in our hedge fund. Oh, I'm sorry. You said accredited. Okay. Oh, I did, didn't I? Okay, yeah. And I should realize I'm talking to a lawyer. They're going to get me on the definitions. So accredited investors is a million dollars, but accredited investors can't invest in a hedge fund. And I'll just, I'll just define that fund. further. Okay. Yeah. So an accredited investor is somebody whose net worth, generally everything they own, is, a mil- is more than a million dollars without your house. And that was changed after the crash because you used to be able to include your house. And so there were a lot of people who were considered accredited investors because they had a piece of real estate that was valued extremely high, and then it crashed, and it turned out they didn't actually have much in the way of assets. I always wondered, why do they care? (laughs) They care because the whole point of it is to try to create a line where over the line are people who are sophisticated, who are aware of the risk that they're taking by entering into a hedge fund, and below the line or on the other side of the line are people who are not so sophisticated and are not aware of the risks or are not adequately aware of the risks. Right. And And so so if you have a house that is your primary asset and maybe it's gone up in the real estate bubble from $500,000 to a million dollars and all of a sudden you become an accredited investor through no, no doing of your own except that just the market went up, they wanted to avoid having those kinds of people be considered gotcha. accredited investors. Well, they just the they raised the bar, though. They raised the bar from accredited to qualified for hedge funds that participate in profits. Like, um, I don't charge people a fee to be in the fund, but I take 20% of the profits when we make them. So, you know, I feel like we're all on the same side of the table that way. Like, they're putting up the money, I'm putting up the effort, and I'm not charging them anything until I make them money, and then I split it. But ironically, the little guy can't participate in that. The little guy has to pay fees because the SEC got in there and required it. It's utterly big brother in every way. It is idiotic to me. And yet people clamor for this kind of thing. I mean, believe me, I would set up a, a separately managed accounts program for people and not charge them fees, except I can't. Yeah, because the SEC thinks it's too risky for you to offer that to people who can't adequately, who don't have the skills and the knowledge and the experience to adequately evaluate the risk that you're putting forth. Yeah. So you take two exact same strategies. Let's say long only in the stock market. All right. And one of them is a regular mutual fund and they do not, by law, participate in profits of the fund. So they don't get anything if you make if they make you money. 
They don't get a single nickel. But that's mutual funds. Mutual funds. Oh, so that's a big difference between yeah. mutual funds and hedge it's funds. It's a humongous difference. Very good point. That's a huge. And mutual funds charge both overt fees, which they tell you about, and hidden fees, which they kind of have stuffed in the brochure someplace, um, that add up to in the ballpark of about 2% per year. Okay. So here's two different funds. One is a mutual fund, which has to charge you, which is charging you 2% a year and does not participate in profits. And the other one is a hedge fund that charges you no fees, but takes 20% of the profits. Yeah, which, which one one's safer better? for you? <laughs> which, well, which one's the exact same guys running both of them? Which one's safer for you? Obviously, the one that where the guy's not charging any fees, right? Because the fees come out no matter what happens. Stock goes up, stock goes down, whatever happens, that 2% is coming out, coming out, coming out, coming out, no matter what. The guy who's taking 20% is only taking 20% of your winnings. And by the way, you can even set these things up so that you have to make 4% a year before he takes the 20%. So, I mean, that's how Warren Buffett started off, is to create a fund where he doesn't take any fees, but he participates in the profits. And to me, that just seems to be the most sensible way to do it. There's absolutely nothing about risk that's got anything to do with the structure of the fees. The risk is in the the strategies of the, of the fund. And so if you have same guy running it, two exactly identical things, but one's got to charge fees and the other one doesn't have to and can take a piece of the profit. To me, it's absolutely idiotic that the little guy who needs it the most who the fees hurt the most has got to pay the fees and the rich guys don't have to. Well, I mean, without, you know, looking back at the history of that particular, that particular SEC regulation, my guess is that it's because if a hedge fund manager is taking 20% of the profits, he is then or she is then incentivized to take a lot of risk in order to gain large profits and has no real downside to taking that risk with somebody else's money and then losing it all, they just go off and maybe start a different hedge fund. Well, you know what? That is absolutely true. You're absolutely right. That that is probably what's gone through the SEC's mind. Is I'm that sure that happened. It I mean, probably again, happened. Again, I haven't looked back. There, there's some. There's always some terrible situation, and then the SEC likes to what is it? Shut the barn door after the horse is left. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm sure something bad happened. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, you know, I absolutely can see that um, for some fund managers who have just a like a gambling sort of strategy they're being they're being compensated because they don't participate in the downside they only participate in the upside so they're yeah, absolutely you, being compensated you know you assume that the downside is that if they don't make any money people will pull their money out of the fund Which that's it is. the downside they eventually yeah. lose their job yeah there's probably more of a downside than that, which is you lost all your money that yeah. was in the fund. Yeah. That's kind of a big deal, yeah, especially I, I, for people who are investing their entire life savings as opposed to sophisticated investors who presumably are investing some portion of their net worth. Okay, well, I, I, I see that point, actually. All right, I, I, I stand corrected. I won't be too, you know, upset about it. Well, I'm not trying to correct you. I mean, I, I think it is Big Brother. It totally is. It's the definition of Big Brother. It's... <laughs> The government looking over our shoulders saying, you can do this and you can't. Yeah. You can make this decision and you can't. You can take this risk and you can't. It is a little bit ironic that the assumption is that if you have a bunch of money, you're sophisticated. And of course. If you don't, you're not. Of course. You know. <laughs> <laughs> 
but let's that's the rules we're playing with so let's let's consider um, what the choices are there so we got I don't know maybe 8,000 mutual funds uh, that are out there and the vast majority of them are trying to beat the market and I've seen statistics in Fortune magazine where 96% of them fail to do so over any long period of time now the issue there is that they're praying, if that's the case, they're praying on the ignorance of individual investors who don't realize that they're being charged these mutual fund fees and they're being, uh, and what those fees do is eliminate money that would have compounded for them if they had just gone off and bought an index or something. Okay, so they charge fees. Are we talking about like annual fees? Yeah, what, these are what kind of fees are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, these are annual fees. They're regular are, fees. Regular fees. So every year you pay. Well, they're not just a simple fee. There are also some commissions. There's a fee for marketing. There's all kinds of stuff tucked in there. But let's say it just adds up to about 2%. And um, these are coming out of the, obviously, of the profits of the mutual fund. Or actually, they're not coming out of the profits. They're coming out of your account. Whether the mutual fund makes money or not does not matter. They're going to charge you those 2% fees even if they lost 30% of your money last year. Hmm. So that's pretty intense. And there's this guy who runs a company called Vanguard, very, very successful, who um, a long time ago just said, you know, it's just wrong that these mutual funds are charging these fees because they can't beat the market anyway. So this guy's name is John Bogle, and he has gone so far as to write a letter to the SEC claiming that these mutual fund fees are actually a giant scam and that they should be penalized. They should be stopped by law wow. uh, from doing this. Yeah, pretty intense. Um, and John's, John's amazing. He's, I think he's 85 years old or 86 years old now. Um, he retired in the late 1990s from Vanguard. But he still goes out and promotes this idea that you've got to educate yourself about mutual funds because they are a scam, in his view. And he's backed also by the guy that runs a Harvard Endowment Fund, uh, also called mutual funds a scam. So there's and, and Warren Buffett doesn't think you get anything from your, from a mutual fund manager at all. Um, Does he doesn't Vanguard believe, have mutual funds? Well, Vanguard has mutual funds, but they're extremely low fee mutual funds, so they don't oh. charge two percent. They so, charge basically so, nothing. So mutual funds are okay as long as the fees are lower. Yeah, and Vanguard's funds tend to focus on specific parts of the market and just track the index. And that's why they don't charge fees because they're not really actively managed. They're just aimed at doing whatever that part of the market's doing. So broad market mutual funds would do the same as that Vanguard has would do the same as the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or something like that, which are all indexes which we really haven't talked about. I just no, probably said a whole bunch of words. Nobody even knows what I'm saying. Um, so let's talk just briefly about an index. And then when I want to come back, I want you to, to play um, a little segment of a talk that John Bogle was doing on a radio show. Okay. Um, so an index is essentially something that says that these key stocks represent a really good view of what the whole market is actually doing. So... Different people have created different indexes over time. The oldest and most famous is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. That was created a long time. I'm not sure exactly when. I think in the late 1800s or something. And it tracks 30 industrial stocks. And these are typically considered the 30 biggest and best companies in America. And so if your company is doing really good and it's really big, it could end up on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Who decides that? 
Um, they have a board that decides that a company is still qualified to be on there or, or should not be on there any longer because it's starting to fade away or whatever. Hmm. That'd so be they, an interesting job. You would, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> they sort of just say, okay, you're out and these guys are in. Yeah. This, so that index is just 30 stocks, but it's venerable and, and it's been around a long time. And that's the advantage of looking at an index that's been around a long time is that you, it has a lot of credibility in saying that this, in fact, is what the market really has done uh, because it's historically worked out well. Mm-hmm. The S&P 500 is another index. It started, I think, in 1926. And it is 500 of the best companies in the country, all big ones, real big companies. Um, and those 500 companies represent the market. And a lot of people use that as a real guide to what the market's doing. It's a little more uh, active than the Dow Jones Industrial Average. A little more going on there. A little bigger ups and a little bigger downs. Meaning the prices are moving more. Right. A okay. little bigger ups, a little bigger downs. Um, but the S&P 500 is very important because if uh, because. The, uh, all of the options industry is based on a look at the S&P 500 in terms of what the beta is for all companies, which means the volatility level of any company is measured against the overall volatility of the S&P 500. So if the S&P 500 is, moving or is not moving at all and your stock is moving around, it's going to have a volatility number this big. Oh, I didn't know that it was measured against the S&P. Yeah. Interesting. That's, that's the, that's so it's the, key the barometer one. for risk. Exactly. That's the barometer for risk. For other people's definition of risk. Exactly. But not ours. Not ours. We think it's completely crazy to say that, <laughs> you know, relative to the S&P, this is risky. I mean, there's so much more that goes into it. Hmm. But we'll, we'll play with that. So more. when you were talking about how, like, a given company will have a risk, or I'm sorry, a volatility number, like I think you said a number of two, two or three that's against the S&P. The S&P 500, okay. which has a number of one, by definition. So whatever it does is one, <laughs> right? So if it drops 50% in one year, um, stocks could have less volatility if they only dropped 40, or more if they dropped 60. Mm-hmm. And if they dropped 60 and the S&P dropped 50, then those stocks would be rated as, would be considered to be more risky. And of course, we think that's absolutely ludicrous. It has no connection to reality or very little um, but nonetheless, that's how uh, the academics have structured it, and that's how a great deal of the market is priced. It's how your portfolio is managed at a mutual fund with modern portfolio theory, with the sharp ratios, all these way out in the sticks, uh, modern theories of how you manage money uh, relative to risk. And risk is judged as your stock's moving around more than the S&P 500, period. Hmm. That's called risk. And Warren Buffett has just said, this is nuts. <laughs> you know, risk is it's a bad company, you know? I mean, these guys aren't making a judgment when, when it comes to risk about whether the company's any good or not, whether it's a wonderful business, it has, um, you know, intrinsic characteristics that, that let you expect it to be around for a long, long time. None of that is included in the standard market definitions of risk. Not at all. Not, not even the price of the business compared to its value. That isn't included in the standard market definition of risk. In other words, they don't even think about whether you're paying way too much for something, which might be risky, <laughs> or you're, you're buying it super cheap, which might be very not risky. They don't, none of that goes into your mutual fund manager's decisions about what's risky and what isn't, which is insane. Well, the mutual fund manager's incentive 
is to bring more money in so that he gets the two percent. Really? It's not to That's make. That's terrible. Yeah, that doesn't sound so. I mean, it's not your incentives aren't uh, mutual fund managers' incentives are not aligned with the investors' incentives. From what you're saying, that's what it sounds like. They're they're very not aligned, and wait do you see how very not aligned they really are. Um, let's listen so to John Bogle. Just one more question on the indexes, hmm. the, indices, the indices, as I like to yeah. say. Um, <laughs> any other ones? So there's the Dow Jones, there's the S and P, right? And you've mentioned to me a number of times just like investing in an index. Mm-hmm. Are there other ind- indices besides mm-hmm. those two? Today. A few years ago, there was just the Dow and the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. So those, the NASDAQ was added with tech stocks. So it's the 100 biggest and best tech stocks. Um, and then an, another index came in called the Russell 2000, which is an index that tracks the small cap stocks, which means stocks that are smaller from about $100 million to a $1 billion in, in market capitalization. In other words, price of the stock times the shares. So those are considered small cap stocks, and the Russell tracks those. So it's more active than the S&P 500, more volatile. Um, And then there's all kinds of other stuff that's indexed. Like, you can pretty much get an index on every industry in the market. So there's biotechnology oh, so index. it's not just those big ones. No, there's tons of them. There's right now. There's just thousands of indexes. Um, you can get an index on the German stock market, the European market, the the Brazilian market. You know, you can get an index on anything, pretty much anymore. Um, but the big ones are the ones that are that the mutual funds measure themselves against. These broad market mutual funds, and um, those. Those are the Dow, the S and P 500, and the Nasdaq. So essentially, it boils down to the net, to the S and P 500. That's what all the big mutual funds measure themselves against. So, for example, um, and this gets really exciting for you as an investor to know, is that if your mutual fund goes down like it did in 2008 and 2009, it goes down 50 or 60 percent. Sorry, excuse me. If the stock market index, the S and P 500, goes down 50 or 60 percent like it did in 2009. But your mutual fund manager only loses 40% of your money. He will get a bonus. Whoa. Yeah. Because he did better. He I mean, I, I, out, get, I get it a little bit. Outperform. He outperformed. So when you see this little thing called outperform, if you've ever seen that, outperforms. All it means is we did better than the index we're tracked against. It doesn't mean you actually made any money. These guys actually can congratulate themselves for not losing as much as the index that they're measured against. I mean, in theory, I I get it. (laughs) I agree with it even. In practice, you've lost my money. Yeah. In practice, you've actually (laughs) lost my actual retirement money. Oh, and by the way, you still charged me your fee. Ah! Yeah. All right. Now, well, and the argument is, I did better than the market. If you had just bought an index, you would have done worse than this. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's some logic there somewhere. But it doesn't feel like it, it when you're missing like 40% it. of your retirement. Exactly. All right. So people tend to get kind of ticked off. And that's before they even know how much money these guys are making on your money. So essentially, you've partnered up with somebody who has absolutely no risk, taking no risk, and getting paid no matter what happens, okay? Mm-hmm. So let, let play John. Yeah, okay, so this is John Bogle. He's on, what's the show that he's on? It's called Income Forever Radio Show. Okay. 
And um, we don't have the date of this show exactly, but it's up on YouTube. That's where we found it. And it was uh, put up... Well, I don't know when it was put up. And and I gotta tell you, I really didn't care about who who the guy was and what the date and all that of the show because I've heard John Bogle say this so many times. I mean, he's been singing this song for 30 years. Yeah, this is his reputation Yep. Um, to be against mutual funds. Yep. Okay, here you go. One, how important is this cost? In the short term, it doesn't look like it matters a lot. And particularly in a bull market, it doesn't look like it matters. You know, in those bull markets of the 80s and 90s, when the market return was 17%, who cared if you were paying 2% a year for that and earning, quote, only, quote, 15%. But now with market returns, particularly real returns after inflation, uh, being maybe 5% is what it's going to be, uh, 2% cost is 40% of the total return going to the mutual fund firm and 60% going to you. And, of course, you put up 100% of the capital. Uh, you take 100% of the risk. But you only get 60% of the return. It seems unbelievable. And if you assume, for the purposes of argument here, that the return on the stock market in the next 40 or 50 years for a young person, uh, maybe even longer in investment lifetime for, for a young person today, uh, but just the time they're investing, and say instead of getting that 7% assumed return, they get 5%, what happens at the end of the, the, the time period, well, that long, long period, is... That 2% cost out of the seven costs you about, well, you retain about 30% of the cumulative gain in that period, and Wall Street gets 70. That's what I call the miracle of compounding, overwhelmed by the tyranny of compounding long-term costs. Now, that's interesting, eh? So Those numbers are insane. Yeah, so let me just make sure everybody understood what he just said there. He just said that over the long, full lifetime of investing, if you just did mutual funds, that at the, by the end of it, the mutual fund guys would have taken about 70% of your money. And they and would have left you with 30%. That's just from 2% a year. From 2% a year. So essentially, John is saying that they've taken the magic of compounding and turned it into a tyranny by peeling off that piece um, out of your retirement account. And it's impossible to believe that that could be true because the 2% isn't that much of seven, right? It's two out of seven. I think, I don't know that his math is exactly right there. I don't get 40% when I divide seven into two. I get like 30%. Yeah, I'm not that good at math. It seems a little bit off. So, you, well, you see, like, okay, I, I agree with this basic idea, and that is that the average return in mutual funds probably over the next 20 or 30 or 40 years is going to be around 7%. And these guys are charging a 2% fee to manage that money. Some are higher, some are lower, but it's in that ballpark on average, which leaves you, the person that put the money in, with about 5% that's growing in a compounded way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that basically is the way the numbers are. Now, what is baffling, I mean, Einstein said that that the power of compounding is one of the most difficult mathematical concepts on the planet. So I don't know that anybody fully understands it, but we all know what the numbers look like. So here's, you've got this weird number. You're going to get a 7% overall return. Your fund manager's taking 2% out, which is only 30%, which is still a lot, but it's 30% of your, of your gain on average over these years. God, I hadn't thought about that being 30% of your gain. Yeah, it's a big, huge chunk. 
That's a lot more than 20% of your gain, no isn't kidding. it? The, the hedge fund managers That's what take. I was just saying. It's like <laughs> it's such a rip. Okay. But they force you to do it. So, um, And so they're leaving you with 70%. So how is it that it turned upside down? At the end of your life, they will have kept 70% out of your hands by taking the money over time. So let me do the numbers for you. I, I ran a couple of scenarios here that are just mind-boggling. I ran one with a person that's, so these are two people, one of whom just puts their money in an index. So they just buy the S&P 500 index. With a, that, the S&P index. Yeah, you go to John Bogle's company, Vanguard, and you get the S&P index mutual fund. Or you, you can skip John's company if you want to. You can just go buy a stock called SPY. SPY is called an exchange-traded fund and it's managed to match the S&P 500 perfectly. Exchange traded fund. Yeah, okay. and the symbol is SPY, and it stands for spiders. And you'll see them sometimes advertised on TV. So these are these. this is a stock which matches the S&P 500. That's the whole job of this stock. And so you don't even really need Vanguard funds. You don't have to pay them. You can just do this, and it's almost got no fees on it at all. All right, which is kind of cool. So, yeah. Why what, would I ever buy an index through Vanguard or any but, other brokerage firm? They would probably argue that theirs is better managed than, I don't know. There's so many people that, like so many fund managers park money in SPY right now. It's huge. It's like just hmm. billions. So I don't know why we'd do Vanguard, but maybe there's a reason. We could probably ask John's company to tell us at some point. Maybe they'll come on the air with us. <laughs> so, so this person that does that knows that you can just buy SPY gets seven percent for the next until they're like 85 years old. All right. So we're starting at 20 years old, and we're just going to do SPY until we're 85 years old. And now my assumptions were they started with $1,000 of savings per year, increased it by 10% per year, they kept growing their job, they're making like a couple hundred thousand dollars by the time they're in their prime earnings ages and they're saving significant amount of money. Um, I did not consider taxation, and by the way, if we get taxed on this, it's massively gonna change the numbers, but let's just keep apples to apples here and go on. And when we're 65, we start pulling the money out at 50,000 a year, increasing at the cost of living. Now, that's the, that's basically what restructured is. So the money's making 7% a year, and we're putting in more and more money every year, and then we start taking the money out to live on it when we're retired. Okay. okay. And when we're when we if we've done this at 7% a year, you know, assuming we're continuing to invest this money, at at one point the most we're investing in any given year, we peaked it at $45,000. So that person's making some pretty good bank. Oh, for, like that person put in $45,000 in one calendar yeah, year. Yeah, in a pre-tax account. Yeah, go yeah. that person. Yeah, it's pretty good. So this is, this is going to be some good-sized numbers, but doable. And um, and then when they're 65, they're, they've just put in 9000 that year, so it came down from that peak year. And then they stopped putting in money and started taking money out. Okay, they end up um, at age 85 with, after it's, you know, let's say you die at that point. They have twelve million six hundred twenty-nine thousand dollars. Wow, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay, pretty good pile. It's I'm just seven percent. Which category is this? This is the mutual fund category. Uh-uh. This is just the index. Oh, oh, okay. You're not paying fees. You're just getting the seven percent. 
And you've this done is putting very well. money into the SPY, this the S and P index every year that you just do on your own, so you're not paying any fees. No you fees. are paying the eight dollar whatever it was <laughs> yeah, $8 purchase and sale price. <laughs> yeah. the commission exactly. Yeah. Um, is that factored in? No, because when you're putting in that's not going to really forty five thousand dollars. It wouldn't really eight dollars. I'm, just, I'm just trying to be thorough. Yep, good. Okay. So there you go. You, you've got $12.6 million. Now, we have absolutely not included taxes, which is going to change that number downward in a way that you will just make you sick. But we should do that at some point. Yeah, I don't want to feel sick right now. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable <laughs> what it does to it. So, I mean, if you think 2% is bad from your broker, why don't you see what Uncle Sam takes out of your life? I'm sure we all are aware of what Uncle oh, Sam takes man. out. We should absolutely do that is one of our podcasts took a look at that. So this one, we didn't do taxes. And somehow you've got 12.6 million. All right, now, all we're gonna change is that we're now gonna take 2% fees out of that 7%. Okay. So you're gonna make five. And the 12, the 12 whatever million mm -hmm. was, at, was a growth rate of 7% per year, right? Yeah, but I also started removing money when the person was 65 years okay. old. But just so I understand, so we're at 7% yeah. every single year, right. which is unlikely to happen on a market over a long period of time. That's actually fairly likely. Oh, really? Yeah. Because there will be a part. large growth, and then it'll come down yeah, a little, it, it, and it'll sort of not, average out to about 7%. Yeah, it, in the long run, including dividends, it averages out about 7%. Okay. Ballpark. Okay, so that's one person. Now, the other person puts their money in a mutual fund because they believe whatever the hype is the mutual fund guys say. And so everything else is the same, still well, not paying any taxes. probably just because they don't know about other options. Yeah, probably because of that, which hopefully we'll teach you right now. And uh, I hope you're sitting down because that person at 85 years old has 4.1 million. Whoa. So From 2%. From just that 2% change, I just shifted the number of growth at the growth rate from 7 to 5. And what comes out at the end is 4.1 million for the person that paid that got the 5. So, and that's what John's talking about. That's what he said is mm -hmm. that by, by the end of your long investing life, they have removed 70% of your retirement fund into their pockets, which is just mind-boggling that that 2% fee could be that damaging, but it is. I would have, I've never thought about it and I would have never anticipated that kind of result. Yeah, it's, it's the compounding when it works against you blows your mind. Yeah. So what this, this actually tells us a lot of things. It, it tells us be really careful about paying fees um, in a mutual fund, number one. Number two, it tells us that Obviously, if the federal government is taking out a chunk of 20% or 30% or 40%, depending on your tax bracket, that's in the ballpark of the same level of damage as this fund manager. So if you're doing the S&P 500 and they're taking chunks out of it all along, you have also managed to remove $8 million. So that's why it's so important to use those pre-tax dollars that you could put into IRAs and 401ks. Yes. Yes, extremely important. And we ought to fight to keep those things as, as citizens. And even better, fight to get capital gains down to zero. Because it's a it's really ironic to me that, you know, we have sort of the 99 and the 1% thing going. And um, I totally get it about Wall Street. But holy smokes, 
all that money in Wall Street that we want to penalize is all our money. I mean, it's all California Teachers Associations and stuff like that. And really what we want to do is we want to not get taxed on money that is actually going back into the economy to create jobs, which is investment capital. And if, if we want to incentivize people to do that, number one, and number two, we want them to be able to take care of themselves in retirement. And if we put capital gains down to zero, like it is in lots and lots of countries, uh, including Singapore and Chile and places like that, um, then you would end up with a lot more money in your pocket in your retirement account than you'll ever have as a, the current tax system. So what we're looking at here when mutual fund guys are taking the fees or when the federal government, Uncle Sam, is taking his taxes is an actual atrocity. It's tyranny. Uh, and by removing, by, by taking you from where you would have been with 12 million down to 4 million, that ratio will hold no matter what's going on there, however much money you're talking about. That ratio is unbelievable. Don't an awful lot of other kinds of funds also take management fees? Oh, I mean, yeah. I know you decided not to because you don't like them, but um, I certainly know you know a lot of venture capital funds that I work with take a management fee in addition to their 20. I mean, a classic structure is two and 20, yep. 2% management, 20% profit fee. Right. Um, because, you know, a lot of these guys don't set them up like Warren Buffett and, and think about it from the other guy's point of view. You know, I mean, <clears throat> when you give somebody money and they take it out to work with it, ideally you're sitting on the same side of the table as the guy that's managing your money. Well, the argument for them is that they pay for that person's office space. They pay for that person's, you know, time to get out the annual letter and they pay for the secretary. Yeah, and- so you've got a billion dollars under management and you're and you're taking two percent. So you've got 20 million dollars a year coming in to cover your secretary in your office. That yeah, ought to do it. Pretty nice office. <laughs> <laughs> that ought to do it. Well, and travel and the research. You might have to pay people to do research for you. I mean, that's that's what that fee goes towards. Yeah. But people but and To time. me, it's sort of like, you know, and if all of that secretary and office and travel and research doesn't make me any money, I don't want to pay you the 2% fee. I mean, that's where I came out on it. Now, I'm running you know, registered investment advisor and we have separately managed accounts and we cannot take a participation fee of 20%. They won't let us by law. So I got to charge those guys. Mm-hmm. So otherwise I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm fine with managing money. I don't want to talk to anybody, but you, you know, don't talk I don't want to actually deal with just the me. Clients. I'll talk to you, <laughs> but I don't want to talk to anybody else. I just want to manage the money, right? If, if, if I'm going to do it anyway, I might as well do it for other people. So that's how I sort of set those up. And, um, and we do have to charge that fee, which is horrendous, and we hate it, but that's the only way they let us get paid. Hmm. So our job is to go out there and be managers unlike mutual funds. So we ought to think real seriously about what makes us different than a mutual fund. Why managing money the way I do it, the way Warren Buffett does it, Charlie Munger, the way these guys are doing it, who are making 20, 30, 40% per year, the, when, when we're managing money like that, we're doing it very, very differently than mutual funds. Incredibly differently strategy of, of managing money um, that we think actually does pay for itself. Um, so if you do it the way the mutual fund guys are forced to do it, you probably are not going to do well. If you do it um, you know, the way we do it, I think you're going to do extremely well. And that's what this podcast is all about. So I guess we ought to well, and maybe I think dive deeper into that. This is This podcast is about... Well, it's about lots of things, but 
if maybe some people start investing their own money, then there's none of this concern about fees and who are you going to pay money to to manage your money. That is right. And wait till we tell you what's happening to the commissions that have happened out there. There's been a sea change in your ability to manage your own money in the last 10 years. And it is absolutely a revolution in information and in expense that you need to know about. And we'll dive into that. In the last 10 years. Yeah, it's been Like post-internet. Okay, so let's say 15. Hmm. Yep. So let's say 2000 was where the watershed started. Interesting. In terms of the tools that I use and the cost of doing business. All right. All right, we'll, we'll get into that. Thanks, everybody. Cool. Yeah, time to go play. See ya. Thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like us, please subscribe and leave a review for us on iTunes. You can get our notes and links for this podcast and post comments about this show and get more information about how to invest on your own by going to ruleonepodcast.com. Everything we've discussed in this podcast is either Danielle's opinion or my opinion and is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.